John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1339.JE3023, certificate number 9101, the Tri-State Tornado. That was a good-sized twister. What was that, an F3? Solid F2. See, now you've lost me again. It's the Fujita scale. It measures the intensity of a tornado by how much it eats. Eats? Destroys. Bet we see some F4s today. Four is good. Four will relocate your house fairly efficiently. <laughs> Is there an F5? What would that be like? The finger of God. Have you ever seen a tornado? None of you have ever seen an F5. I have never seen one in person. There was one in Salt Lake City when we lived there that took the like roof off the Delta Center, the basketball arena. Uh-huh. But I've never lived anywhere, like that's an unusual place for a tornado. And I've never lived anywhere that it has a lot of them. I've seen little dust devils. Sure. You know, when the, you see a little like, elevating hot air, just pick up sand and go whoop in a little column. Yeah, we have those periodically. I've seen a little water spout similar. Oh, you've seen of, a water spout. Yeah, down in Just the, the same thing over ocean? Yeah, down in the Caribbean. But no, I've never seen a tornado either. I was in Ohio during a tornado and I was out in a car and had tuned the radio to the local kind of station while they were talking about it. And I went to find it and was driving furiously. Which, by the way, is the smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. And we recommend that people always do. Drive toward the natural disaster. Toward the tornado. It was not like a big, it was not big, wide open plains. It was hilly, tree-covered Ohio, sort of southern Ohio uh, rolling hills. And so it wasn't like I could just go 120 miles an hour on a big flat highway in Oklahoma. So I was driving through all these towns and I saw the devastation of the tornado as I was, because it was headed on a diagonal track across the state. And I kind of was, I had to go up one street, turn right, go down. And I never caught sight of the storm. And it wasn't a, it wasn't like some storm that like leveled Oklahoma City or something or Columbus. It just, it went through the woods and threw trees around and blew down some homes. Uh, it was amazing to see the immediate aftermath of one. But I've always wanted to see a, a live tornado. It's just like one of those fascinations. It's one of those things that exists but seems like it couldn't. Like kind of like Aurora Borealis where you watch the footage and you're like, nope, not a natural <laughs> phenomenon. I'm, I'd like to debunk, like Alex Jones. Yeah. I'm going to debunk this. Tornadoes are a CIA plot. 
I've seen a lot of Aurora Borealis, so I can confirm that that is... You privileged Alaskans. Well, yeah, and they may have been beaming chemtrails into my eyes, but... I've had enough to hear with your Inuit privilege. Yep, it's a big deal. Like, you can see why, um, for example, the early Israelites would think that God was in the whirlwind. You know, just to watch one of these little desert dust devils, you're like, that is not the laws of nature... What is reaching down and doing that? Sure, they they seem to have a consciousness almost. That's right. Yeah, they move with what appears to be intent. And I feel like there are lots of old cartoons built on this idea that, you know, Mickey Mouse or Daffy Duck or whoever is like fight, has some kind of standoff against a tornado right. with a mind of its own that can kind of dance around. Well, and I know a big part of your worldview is still based on what happened in Mickey Mouse cartoons. Sure, I mean, that's why I am only wearing pants right now with, <laughs> and no shirt, just two big buttons on my pants. Well, it's how I got you in here, right? I put a bag of bird seed out there that was full of lead shot. And then I have a magnet in your chair. <laughs> um, living here in the West, we don't experience the massive storms that you see in other parts of America. We don't have hurricanes and we don't have... We hardly even have lightning strikes here in gl- gloomy, drizzly Seattle. Yeah, very few thunderstorms. We'll get maybe one a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hardly have any blizzards and no tornadoes. We have, in the Pacific Ocean, we have cyclones rather than hurricanes. But we're protected in the Northwest by our uh, Olympic mountain range, and we don't even really get those. No, like it's, we don't live by the ocean in any meaningful way. But growing up in Anchorage, there were powerful spring windstorms that often would come down, and they weren't cyclical. They just came down out of the mountains. And do you mean cyclical, like cyclonic? Or they the, were not cyclonic. Oh, I thought you meant like they didn't come every month or something. No, no they were neither cyclonic nor cyclical. Uh, <laughs> were they psychological? They didn't cycle, but they were psychological. Uh, they would come down sort of right around Valentine's Day or in the spring. So they are cyclical. Uh, but yearly, right. They, so they were, <laughs> they were yearly cyclical, not like weekly. Uh, but it, you couldn't always depend on them. But generally... Uh, you couldn't depend on them. Like don't use them for Valentine's Day candy delivery. Right, or don't like, yeah, you don't want to don't set your atomic your, clock by them. Don't, don't toss your chocolates into the air and hope they will be blown to your beloved's front porch. But like in 1980, I think there was a storm, I recall it, I got caught in it, that devastated whole neighborhoods. And it was just like downforce wind that would just smash houses rather than than spin. That's it, a thing? Wind coming down at the ground? It just came straight down out of the mountains and would like hit hit the houses kind of from the top but on the side and just would lay waste to a whole neighborhood. Just these crazy like downbursts. So I, I've had firsthand experience of like of crazy weather, but not quite on the scale of other places in the United States that seem to be like I mean, and, and as a consequence, I've always been really excited by yeah, me too. I've always storms. I've always dreamed of like it must just take away some of your confidence as a person in the world because you and I have never lived in a universe that we've seen turn on us right. like that, you know. But if you're somebody from LA who every couple of months just gets used to like the idea that the Earth can just do whatever it wants, you know, well, or that it's on fire all the time or right. whatever else. But, but like having to witness that stuff must really change your view of the universe. Like maybe it's a carpe diem thing. Like I could, you know, a giant hand could swap me at any time. Yeah, sure. And, and like hurricanes, right? Every year we go through this, um, this thing in the United States where it's like, well, it's hurricane season. And now we're going to get this real excitement of like, is this storm going to destroy Miami or not? 
and then it turns and you're like, oh, Miami is spared or like it hits. And and this is all very academic and fun to watch as a kind of a weather nerd in the Pacific Northwest. Right. I might have a different idea if I lived in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I'm I, I'm the type of person that when someone says, I'm not leaving, I'm barricading myself in my Fort Lauderdale home, I always admire them a Yeah, little. you're the kind of person who's actually saying that in that yeah. story. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not leaving. I'm the kind of person who when someone says that, it's probably me. Yeah, and I mean, if I lived down there, I might do it. And I, I and like I say, I've, I've tried to see tornadoes. I'm not uh, averse to them. I can totally imagine you just unloading a shotgun into a, into a storm front. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> just shooting arrows. <laughs> um, and globally, there are a lot of uh, weather hotspots and you see devastating storms happen in a lot of different parts of the world, uh, including storms that are like to us sort of r- really astonishing, like big, big desert storms, sandstorms mm. that blot out the sun. Right. And in Pakistan and Bangladesh, like often during the rainy season in Asian countries, you'll get enormous floods and just powerful monsoon rains. But there's something about the central United States geographically that has created this tornado alley uh, condition. And tornadoes are not unique to the United States. Right. I mean, you mentioned Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh actually has more tornado casualties than any place on earth just because it's a flimsier dwellings and more crowded, a a denser population, population and people with nowhere else to go. Um, that doesn't mean they get more tornadoes than we do. Just that they're. Yeah. Tornadoes su- surprisingly are relatively rare there, but when they do hit, they're super devastating. Um, and there are tornadoes happen in Argentina and in Australia, but rarely, and the atmospheric conditions aren't quite what they are in central United States. It's what makes us a superpower. Nobody nobody can compete with our tornado acumen. We get those tornadoes and we get those crazy hurricanes. And that is why USA on top (laughs) one once again. Every so often it sends one of us to Oz. True. Which is nice. Gives us magical power devices. That's right. Like ruby slippers that we can use on our enemies. That's right. We we kill witches with our houses, which is a big part of America's identity. It has something to do, like the hurricanes, with the Gulf of Mexico, right? You've got warm air, and warm air has got more energy and instability in it. Warm Warm air air. coming up, and then you have the Rocky Mountains, which are just the right size. They're not. uh, They're not so big like the Andes. Uh, The Andes mountains are. Taller, but narrower. Too big. That's they're, what I always say. Yeah. Trying too hard. They're too tall and they're not wide enough. Um, so the Rockies are nice and wide and they're tall and they create a very dry climate in the sort of Colorado, Montana. So you've got that cool, dry Rockies air. Cool, dry air. Meeting the... The super wet, muggy Gulf of Mexico air. And they have enough time and space to really stake out their relative claims to the land. And apparently the mountains give you wind shear, which is uh, the difference between the speed at which the wind is moving on the surface versus upper layers of the atmosphere. And I guess that's what can really get cyclonic rotation going. So that's how you get these big thunderhead supercells. Right. And then you've got the issue of like the density of dry air versus wet air changing as those things go up and down in altitude, mm. right? So density changes as the air cools and and is warm, but also like the altitude, the relative altitude of those cells creates this kind of cyclonic 
churning. And I think it's hard for us to picture that because we picture weather as a two-dimensional process. You know, you're looking down at a map and a weatherman is sort of gesturing, here's a cold front coming in from the north, you know, and you kind of forget there is a third dimension. Right. And that's, the, you know, it's the altitude mixing that gives you tornadoes. Yeah, air is is coming in and then pouring down and air is coming up and then rising up in big waves and sort of, you know, crashing around itself. Supercells. The, even the name is scary. Supercell. And there's a thing in the, in the United States called the dry line, which is a... What's the dry line? Well, the dry line is the place where the dry Western air and the warm Southern air kind of collide. And you can see it actually, if you look at like a map of Texas, uh, if you look at one of those maps that shows uh, the re climatic regionalism of Texas, you get the Gulf part of Texas is pretty wet and lush and West Texas is dry. And mm -hmm. there's a line kind of a, a visible from space even that is like the dry line and it moves uh, every day. But over time, you kind of get these, these different regional sort of Missouri is wet and Oklahoma is dry type of, uh, and they fall kind of uh, like statistically in different places along this route, this dry line. And route. Tornado Alley is the name given to this kind of route that extends north from the Gulf of Mexico into the Midwest. Is that right? Yeah, it heads sort of northeast uh, from the from the lower west to the to the upper east. Right, you'll get tornadoes down in West Texas. You'll get them up in Ohio, Indiana. Even. And the implication is not that tornadoes are moving in this direction through the alley. It's just that this is kind of a, a stripe of America in which tornadoes appear. Uh, this is a stripe of, of America. It's where the two weather systems collide, yeah. but also it does create oh. a channel. So they do move up the alley. They move that direction. You'll very seldom get a tornado that starts in Ohio and moves to Kansas. Like that's not the way they go. Uh, they go the other way. Yeah, you'll seldom see a person who grows up in Ohio moves to Kansas either. Mm, uh, that's actually true, right? They go through Kansas on their way to Portland, Oregon. <laughs> right, or, or Austin, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's a restaurant here in town that um, changes up its regional cuisine every month. I don't know if you know this place on Queen Anne. I know it well. And uh, yeah, I like to take my kids there. And at one point, I don't know if you remember this. nothing kids like more than changing up the cuisine. In kind of uh, superficial ways. So it's like, San Francisco, enjoy these Telegraph Hill Macaroni and tostadas cheese. or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's all just alliteration based, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but a couple of years, uh, several years ago, they were doing a Tornado Alley theme. Oh. I don't know if you remember this. So they had... Um, so they of, just had Jello with marshmallows <laughs> in it? <laughs> what do you eat in uh, whatever the Missouri foodstuffs are? Crawdads? I, I don't Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it was just, again, alliteration-based. Enjoy this Jefferson City jambalaya. Uh -huh. And unfortunately, these it was the week these terrible tornadoes struck Oklahoma. Oh. Do, you, do you remember that? I don't yeah. even know what year yeah, this was. Sure. But it was just some, you know, the worst. A couple of years ago. Yeah, through three different towns, all these tornado strikes. And suddenly these guys have all this tornado alley signage on there. It would be like basically opening a restaurant called 9-11 right. on 9-10. And so it was a big deal in the local press. Are these guys going to change their menu or just ch change the name to weird Midwestern food? Or I think in the end, they ended up donating a portion to Tornado Relief and leaving the sign up. So, I mean, like so many things in our culture, if you aren't actually affected by the tornado personally, 
it's a big deal in the news for one week and then right. you forget about it and assume that everything's fine. And if you're, if the tornado killed your family and destroyed your house, you never forget it. And it certainly is the kind of thing you would need to be told you need to be sensitive to because the overlap of people who were affected by the Oklahoma tornado and the people eating at that place on Queen Anne is probably nil. Yeah, there's that. Well, although the strangest thing about the one kiss away phenomenon is that you could go into that restaurant on Queen Anne and I bet talk to enough people and somebody's going to know somebody in Oklahoma. You know, it's just, it's the strangest effect of us all being so so tightly knit as people. I often, I often just walk into that cafe and ask around to see who knows Kevin Bacon. Yeah, you're just like, how many cousins do I have in here? And everybody goes, me. <laughs> but the thing about uh, tornadoes in, a, in the United States is that they, they often take a path through a pretty unpopulated part of the world. And they're big, fascinating storms that cause wreckage on somewhat manageable scale. Like if they run over a town and destroy everything in this little Oklahoma town, it's something that's pretty wondrous, but it's not the same as, it doesn't have the same effect as like all of Los Angeles is on fire, or Miami's underwater. Yeah, I wonder if that's our new urban-centric way of viewing the world where this can be a fun curiosity to us because it just devastated Axe Handle, Arkansas. Right. And, and we don't have to picture an earthquake that's just leveled Nagoya, Japan or something, you know, um, it's, you know, we think of, we think of rural plight as charming. Yeah. I think that, I think it's true. And also until very recently with our kind of connecting climate change to these phenomena, um, this just seemed like an act of God. They always seemed like acts of God. Nothing could have been done about it. God sure is hard on this particular stripe of America. Well, think about what God did to Israel over and over. If they're the chosen people, boy, they sure, God really had it out for them. Like they literally are going to reap the whirlwind. Like yeah. that's part of, it's it's <laughs> in the fine print. I, <laughs> if you do bad stuff, tornadoes. Tornadoes, literally. But there's another curious thing that we have in the United States, which is we love to, and this is probably more of a global phenomenon, but we really love to do it, which is rank things. Oh, boy. And rank things by a lot of different criteria, including the worst. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. What, what do you think the origin of this is? Like, do you think people in Elizabethan England were like... The Tom, worst cholera or, outbreak. Yeah, worst bubonic plague outbreaks, go. <laughs> or is this kind of a, uh, like, because I think of it as, as kind of a our generation, Gen X. It's certainly a clickbaity. Yeah, it's certainly, yeah, that's certainly amped it up. Yeah. Like, that's the warm, moist air that turns it into a phenomenon. You know what it did? Well, it came to us through the Guinness Book of World Records. Sure. Which I'm assuming you're in. 
Are you oh, in the question. Guinness Book of World's Records? Okay, I know I must be because I got on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in some special themed Guinness Book of World Records wow. week. How, obviously, do, how can you not know that you're in the Guinness Book of World Records? Well, I don't even know what the record is. It must it must be some... Most game show Yeah, longest winner? game show streak. Or, wow. And they change up all the records now. So like each year the book will have... My spiel about the Guinness Book of Records is this. In our day and people will not believe this, is it was like an actual reference book you would keep next to the almanac. Yes. Because that's why the Guinness family had this. It was like to settle bar bets. Like if you thought the ostrich was the biggest bird and this bozo thought the condor was the biggest bird, there would be a book behind the bar where you could have it out. Well, right. And we would spend in the in elementary school libraries, if if you were left unattended for long, you'd go find the Guinness Book of World Records and you pour got, over. You got to see the, the guy with the bee beard right. and the guy with the fingernails. So what is it now? The two fat twins on motorcycles. Well, it was, it turned out it was all us. It was all 10 year old boys reading this thing. Oh. And so now it's this big coffee table book with color pictures for kids of like, you know, a piece of French toast the size of the sheep meadow in central park oh right and all those people that are like trying to get the most number of people chewing gum at the same time right type of record so it's no longer a serious tallest geyser kind of a, a reference work um i think it used to be more like god's records uh -huh. you know because <laughs> it really is like here's the biggest plateau or right, whatever right tallest man and now it's secular like god has been kind of shut out of the record books right and now it's like the most number of pokemons exactly or how yeah. many pogo sticks could we you know people just do an increasingly goofy things well on the on the god's records tip we love to rank things like storms and fires and uh calamities. I'm going to say that it comes out of maybe like rock criticism, maybe like people having top 10 lists of, the, of their, you know, rock critics wanting their top 10 lists. I mean, top 10 lists are a, are a major way that contemporary people interact with data. It came from music. I bet like it came from, it came from Cashbox and billboard, right? Uh, th there's something I intrinsic to people that they want to have. Uh, they want bragging rights. So if you lived through a tornado and you met a guy at some railroad depot somewhere who was like, I lived through the worst tornado ever, and you want to say, my tornado was worse than yours, um, I think there is a bar bet aspect to it that yeah. maybe goes back further in time. And that's a big part of the American West is people boasting about one year we got so much rain that I just shot in the air 10 feet out of my shrinking buckskins, you know, all this kind of goofy stuff. And the other person has to say, well, in Texas, the beanstalks grow so big that you can get to the moon, you know? And so you get this American landscape of tall tales that comes out of um, people boasting about the kinds of the severity and the majesty of our landscape and our disasters. Right. And there's, uh, I think as we've gone into an age of science, there has been a desire to codify that into some sort of measurable scale. So you can put your disaster up against all the others and compare it according to a graph, a science graph. And today, like we've gotten to the point where I follow enough people on Twitter in LA, uh -huh. you know, that, um, there's your first mistake. If the, <laughs> two mistakes in that sentence. <laughs> like in, in our day, social media was, you know, like, like all of our entertainment was kind of centralized in New York, New York and, and LA. LA. Right. That's where the comedy um, writers are. And as a result, when there's any, earthquake in LA, you'll immediately see a bunch of people being like 4.8. Right. No, 3.6. And then somebody will be like, Ooh, it was a 5.5, but it was 50 miles out to sea, you know? Right. Asterisk. So people can use the Richter scale to kind of 
gauge the uh, what the earth is doing around them. And as you know, again, not to always make this show about me growing up in Alaska, but we Alaskans uh, think it is very hilarious when people in California talk about their 4.2 earthquakes, because even growing up there, I lived through uh, like a handful of, of high sevens. Anchorage had a straight up 9.0, right? We, we had the, we had the bit, well, higher than that, they that's, say that's now. That's insane. Um, uh, that earthquake, the 1964 earthquake, which we'll talk about on this show. On, uh, on the next episode of on, John's Omnibus. Alaska Upbringing, <laughs> aka Omnibus. It was, uh, it was prior to, I, I, uh, like I wasn't born yet, but my, my family lived up there and it, uh, that earthquake lasted five minutes. Oh my gosh. If you can just set a timer and think five minutes and just sit there and imagine that the earth is shaking violently that entire time. Okay. Here's me. Like if a podcast ad were to run for five minutes, I would be so stressed out and angry. <laughs> then imagine the whole plant, the whole landscape is just shaking around you for that. Same amount yeah. It's astonishing. And that earthquake produced, uh, uh, tsunamis and all, all manner of earth subsidence and terrible, terrible wreckage. And, and, I think I will detail that on a future episode. But does that mean there's a way to rank tornadoes in the same way we can rank uh, the Richter scale can rank earthquakes? Yeah. So the Richter scale was developed because we had this, uh, we were experiencing these phenomenon and we needed a way to talk about it relative to one another. And so with an earthquake, you could invent actually a little box, right? A seismograph that had a, (laughs) that looked like a lie detector. And it basically was a lie detector for the earth. And, um, <laughs> really, yeah. when, so when the earth is truthful, it, there's no earthquake. Right. But then when the earth is like, I'm not the earth now, I am jiggling like jello. That's the lie. So, uh, and a man named Charles Richter popularized this scale, which was logarithmic, right? That's what people don't get. Yeah. That, a, that a nine is not one eighth worse than an eight. It's like twice as bad as an eight or something or ten, 10, ten times. times. Ten is, times. Is, is that what the magnifier is? Yeah. Which is hard. It's a hard scale for people to understand. And uh, like you say, earthquakes happen. There are shallow earthquakes and deep earthquakes and earthquakes that happen offshore. And it's still, even with the Richter scale, very difficult to use it. uh, As a measure of anything useful, right? Yeah, because we're trying to put a scientific measurement on things that are at a scale which is very difficult to comprehend. And they, and they include uh, factors like how I felt during the earthquake and how many houses fell over, which has a lot to do with your know, population density and who lives in a mobile home. Right. And how, yeah, right. How, how, how well the houses are built. Yeah. And also, yeah, whether it was a shearing earthquake or like a, you know, like the deep ones have a very different effect than ones that, that have a lot of like sheer movement back and forth instead of up and down, I guess. Or, you know, you'll get a, you'll get two plates against one another and they get stuck for a long time. And then when they finally dislodge, there's this jolt of movement. That's a kind of different whole different phenomenon than other kinds of quakes. Again, very jealous of people who actually get to experience natural disasters. Well, listen, we're on a path here for the big one in Seattle and you may get your wish, my friend. It will be the one, that'll be the thing that happens right after the last omnibus. So the Richter scale we developed uh, in order to measure earthquakes and there is the hurricane scale, which we we talk about there being category five, category four, et cetera, hurricanes. That one one doesn't have some guy's name. Well, it's actually called the Saphir-Simpson hurricane wind scale. But Saphir-Simpson, I guess, doesn't really... It's alliterative, but it's not like a Richter sounds like. 
Like that's some tough. It even sounds science. tectonic. It does. It's got that CT in it. Also, he was smart not to share the credit. Like I'm sure he had some nice lab assistant who did all the work, and she doesn't get her name in the thing or whatever. You Absolutely know? right. As soon as you put a hyphen, yeah, in a scale, I'm not remembering a scale with a hyphen in it. And so the hurricane, uh, the uh, Sapphire Simpson hurricane scale. Sapphire <laughs> Simpson. Sapphire Simpson. Mm. Mm, Simpson, eh? Um, it's again trying to measure uh, hurricanes according to a wide variety of criteria, right? How fast is the wind? How low is the pressure? How high is the storm surge? And then this very subjective sense of like, was there a lot of damage? Did houses get broken and did people get died? That makes it tricky because you can only do it in hindsight. You can't be like, here comes a cat five. You got to wait until you see how many people got flooded. And then you're like, hey, turns out that was a cat five. And there's a lot of that in storm measurement. I think it's an inexact science. And I think when you see a storm off the coast of Florida and it has 200 mile an hour winds and the millibar pressure is 900 and whatever, 20, um, you can say, oh boy, this is looking like it's going to be a category four. That's when I get up and kind of tap my barometer. <laughs> the the big like, barometer hmm, my, on your sailboat. Cause my knees acting up again. So I got to tap, 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 tap. But the hurricane, or I'm sorry, the, the tornado scale was developed uh, by a man named Ted Fujita. And he was Japanese American. I can uh, only assume he's Japanese American. He was actually born in Japan and then came to study at the university of Chicago and was just one of these people that decided to make the research of storms your raison d'etre. And he pioneered all manner of information about tornadoes, Midwestern storms, uh, storm fronts, down drafts. He became... Um, Mr. Tornado, they called him. Yeah. The, the, the He's big, the media guy you get. He's the big expert. And it was um, kind of surprising that research that the research he was doing in the middle of the 20th century wasn't stuff that people had tried to discover maybe a little bit earlier, but there was still a feeling, I guess, that tornadoes were like, oops-a-daisy. Sure, when you look at the top 10 most destructive tornadoes in the U.S. of all time, a list I just looked at, uh, <laughs> like none of them are, as I just happened to know off the top of my head, like none of them are after 1953. Right. You know, like there there was just a century of, of it's not one of these things that we can yet see a climate change related acceleration from it's always been bad. And the death tolls now are down, of course, because people are better trained about going into their cellars and largely house, because houses of are better built. Oh, is that right? You think he's, this guy has saved thousands of lives. He has in a lot of different ways. He, um, he's the person who discovered the downdraft, the cold air downdraft, which used to be responsible for a lot of aviation deaths. Huh. Because you hit a downdraft in your airplane and all of a sudden you just you just lost 5,000 feet of altitude. You don't know why. And that you would crash. And Fujita's like research now changes the way airports work and the way pilots are trained. I assume they avoid them now. He didn't create an, an antidote. And there's no antidote <laughs> take, to paint, a downdraft. Paint no. your plane with this stuff. I actually was, I actually have been in a couple of airplanes that collided with a downdraft and lost thousands of feet of altitude in a second. And it is unfun. On, you've felt that on a passenger plane, right? On a passenger plane. I have as well. And in a small plane. 
Uh-uh. It happened to me once in a Cessna 172 where I where he just basically fell out of the sky. From now on, I'm going to be like, Fujita! <laughs> Fujita! I don't know why I should blame him. No, you should be grateful to him because if the pilot doesn't crash into the ground, it's probably because of training uh, they received as a result of this research. But Fujita developed a tornado ranking scale, the Fujita scale, or what we describe as F1 through 5 in ranking tornadoes. So today when you emailed me and said, hey, I think I'm going to do the tri-state tornado and the other F5s, I thought you were talking about some kind of airplane. Right. I was like, am I going to have to learn about some freaking other kind of military hardware? Thanks, John. <laughs> well, there is, a, there is a military jet called the Tornado. It's a British fighter plane from the 50s. And, uh, and F-5s are also, uh, there's the Northrop Grumman F-5. I bet you didn't think I was actually going to talk to you about it. fighter planes, but I sure will. I made it come true. It's like the <laughs> Angels of Mons. I created my own nightmare and it came true in real life. Uh, no, you cannot imagine my glee when I learned this was going to be an actual tornado and I was not going to have to learn about the manufacturing history of a plane called the tornado. So Fujita, yeah, developed this system. Um, he actually had a, uh, like a co-author of the paper. It's actually called the Fujita Pearson scale, but, uh, Fujita is such a nice name and Pearson is who cares. And it also like a, like we've already stipulated, if you put a hyphen in something, Nobody cares about the second name. That's why uh, you did not want the show to be called the Ken Jennings hyphen Roderick, John Roderick podcast. <laughs> yeah, the Ken Roderick podcast. You were like, it's got to be the John Rodcast, man. If it, it, you know, if I had, if I had made this the Jennings Roderick podcast, maybe my name would actually show up in the, in the <laughs> iTunes metadata <laughs> instead of it saying omnibus with Ken ellipses. In <laughs> uh. uh, one screen, it actually says Ken Jennings, uh, dot, dot, dot. And it's like Ken Jennings, uh, what? A vegetarian? Ken Jennings at where? So, <laughs> so Pearson got erased. So now we had uh, a Fujita scale and it was very important, I think, to people to go back throughout the uh, 19th and 20th century and apply it to tornadoes in history to see if we could come up with uh, the greatest tornado of all time. And, and um, it's sort of like going back and describing Oscar Wilde as being bipolar, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, <laughs> now we know. Uh, I can't believe this tornado had Asperger's syndrome. Yeah, now we know why Van Gogh cut off his ear. It's because he was suffering from borderline personality disorder. I assume we have quite a bit of the data we would need. Yeah, there were meteorologists throughout this period. People were studying the weather and observing it closely. And um, and this was a time when uh, the census was very important to America. And also, I mean, throughout the 19th and 20th century, the census and uh, almanacs all played a big role in how we apprehended the world. Farmers needed all this data. Sure. And so there's a lot of record of uh, tornadoes throughout the 19th and 20th century. So you can give it the old retroactive Fujita. That's right. You give it the... the which is not a sex move. The retroactive Fujita does sound like a pretty good, <laughs> like I'm going to get my swing out of the barn. <laughs> um, but it's universally acknowledged that the greatest tornado, the largest of all the tornadoes... Greatest. The, <laughs> Hey, whatever. I hate this tornado. The most awesome of all tornadoes. Why are you kissing after this tornado, John? Uh, happened on March 18th, which is my daughter's birthday. The day after St. Patrick's Day. That's right. A whole Thank lot of goodness. hungover Midwesterners. 
March 18th, 1925, um, a tornado began in uh, the state of Missouri, what you, I guess you would describe as southeastern Missouri. By that little tongue thing that's always tonguing Arkansas. Mm, tonguing Arkansas. <laughs> that, that's a great independent film. Um, it started in southeastern Missouri, and then it went entirely across the southern part of, uh, or the southern half of Illinois. And oh, yeah. It doesn't just clip a corner. Like, this thing is tri-state legit. It crosses a whole U.S. state here. It crosses it from one end to the other and then goes into southwestern Indiana. So this tornado, which un, very unimaginatively is called the tri-state tornado rather than being called the, I don't know. It's just, we're slaves to alliteration. Yeah. We're the, just like, like the cafe menu. Grosley Cummins tornado or something interesting. Like, give it some kind of... I feel no. like it should have some more biblical name, you know, like it should be the great terrifying tornado or, or something like, like the that. long, long acres tornado. What would that mean? It went across many acres. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not in the tornado naming the long business acres either. Tornado sounds more like a high school basketball star. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the long acres tornado. Jeff Willoughby. Yeah, actually, Long Acres was right, a horse racing track out here. So that maybe that's where I got the name. But the tri-state tornado, pretty boring. You know, yeah. hurricanes, they get named after people. Ida or Inez or, sure. you know, Horace. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's always one of those three people. Yeah, why isn't this? It's either called? Ida, then it's Inez, then it's Horace, <laughs> and they go back to Ida. Back to Ida. <laughs> why don't they do that with tornadoes? Why isn't this called, like, Tornado Frank? Also, tri-state makes it sound boring. It kind of implies that it's, like, new. New Jersey, Connecticut, and, and New York, yeah, right? it sounds like, like an insurance agency. Right. Um, but the uh, Tri-State Tornado was a unique and remains a unique tornado in many, many, many respects. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. I think uh, another phenomenon of recent times is to try to uh, defang, debunk, demystify phenomena of the past by offering some other explanation or some something that degrades the thing. It's part of our hot take culture, I think, that we have to we even have to have hot takes on bubonic plague. Yeah. Turns out a lot of plague victims actually died of Did you see the one a couple years ago where it was like, actually it wasn't rats, it was gerbils. <laughs> and this was a headline everywhere. And if you read the paper, if you read the actual research, no, there's like one line where it's like other Asian mammals like marmots and gerbils may have been involved or whatever, but th that becomes the headline, right. you know? No, it's actually gerbils. 
Like, what do we do? We literally need to have a hot take on the War of the Roses. Like, <laughs> can it just be the War of the Roses? No, we want to take the thunder away from everything. And in this case, they uh, there has been some revisionist research about big, big tornado systems of yore. Uh, and uh, describing them now as tornado families. Right, it was multiple. Right, saying that no no one tornado could have done all this. And so you, we have to imagine a, uh, a Wizard of Oz-looking tornado connecting a storm cloud to the ground, and that bottom has to physically move across three states. That is, that, that is the requirement to get a record, to, to set the record, I guess. And these guys are saying, no, it was a more complicated thing where somewhere it was constantly appearing and disappearing and strengthening and weakening and... Well, so the, uh, that that idea of a tornado family has been retroactively applied to a lot of great tornadoes, very destructive tornadoes. It turns out, oh, it was a tornado family. All of the top 10 most destructive ones I looked at in terms of loss of life now had a little tornado family asterisk on them. Right. And it made me a little angry. It makes me a little angry too, because, you know, hey, stop trying to try, trying to make that tornado less than it was. But in a lot of cases, tornado families are clearly a family. You'll get a tornado. This tornado is, you know, is cooking across the landscape here. It goes through this town. And then 10 minutes later, a town 40 miles to the north is also hit by a tornado and it's clear it couldn't have been the same tornado, but they're all twisting well, together. What if, what if, I'm just saying, mm. it got on a bus? This is unlikely. <laughs> Knowing the behavior of tornadoes as, as well as I do, uh, although you will find a gorilla will get on a bus, a tornado typically will not. That is good to know. Yeah. So yeah, it must have just been a new system forms nearby. Or a very similar system. And like you're suggesting, right? A tornado touches down and then it kind of like bounces. And then this one comes down and bounces over here. You know, it's a it's a storm system. It's a single storm. And all these, um, you know, it's a little racist. All these white Midwesterners saying all these tornadoes look alike. Oh, wow. Right? Oh, you had to go there, huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> little... <laughs> I, I went there. I don't know where there is. But uh, but in this case, the tri-state tornado, all the evidence shows that although there was a, it was a, um, in some ways, the worst storm day in American history, there were tornadoes touching down all over the United States, in Alabama, in Tennessee, in Kansas, in Kentucky, this same day, very, very destructive tornadoes were appearing everywhere. Um, there is ample evidence to suggest that the tri-state tornado itself was just a single storm, an unprecedented, insanely big, fast-moving, 60-mile-an-hour storm wow. as it moved across the landscape. So nothing in 1920 can outrun that. At 60 miles an hour, I mean, you'd have to really be hotting up your Model A. And I assume you can find this out with just the chronology of which towns were re reported damaged when, and you can just essentially follow the track like a family circus cartoon. Yeah, and this storm was so devastating that it actually scoured the earth. Uh, so you could- You can literally follow. See it's, a the, it's a trench. You could see the trench, right. Wow. Um, what made the storm particularly crazy was that it was not one of those beautiful tornadoes that you see- uh, coming down out of a high storm cell and a big, twisty, long, elegant, uh, snake-like tornado. Mm -hmm. It was happening within a low system where the clouds were low almost to the ground and big torrential rains. So that to someone looking out across the horizon, 
it was clearly a storm, but it just looked like a big, dark, ugly. It's a gray. It's a gray day, and then suddenly your town is flattened. And so a lot of people watching, a lot of like you know Midwestern people that had lived through many storms, saw it coming and did not recognize it as a tornado. And behind this screen of of black clouds, rain, and debris was this monster hidden beneath. And I guess by chance, it just happened to go through pretty populated areas, right? It went through just a ton of mining towns and one after another. It did. So it destroyed towns, utterly destroyed them. Uh, Moore Township in Missouri, Annapolis, Missouri, Gorham, Illinois, Murfreesboro, Illinois, West Frankfurt. It flattened these towns and killed multiple people, including like it went over something like five separate schools. Uh, school was in session, maybe more than five schools and just would hit a school and wipe it out uh, and kill every kid. There's a terrible story in uh, West Frankfurt, Illinois, which was a mining town. So all the men were down in the mines. The electricity goes out and they come up out of the mine to see what happened only to find that the school's been hit. All the houses are gone. Most of their wives and children are dead. All the men survived from being in the coal mine. Right. Although I think in West Frankfurt, um, just maybe 25 years later, there was an enormous explosion in that coal mine, uh, that ended up killing 120 coal miners. So it's nature's way. So in the end, uh, and I think that they used the rebuilt high school as a morgue for the, for the dead coal miners. Are you kidding me? Uh, no. Wow. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. West Frankfurt don't, uh, in fact, West Frankfurt is a funny city because, um, that's not funny at all yet. No, it's funny because you would think that it was named after Frankfurt, Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, there was just a guy named Frank who built a fort. There. <laughs> This is true. Like out of couch cushions? Uh, it was like... Frank, during, put the cushions back on the couch. We're having the Millers over. It was during the Tecumseh uh, Wars. And uh, so, you know, it's hard for us to now imagine a time when Indiana would have been the Western frontier. Right. But uh, but that was a time when, you know, Tecumseh was like, no, no further white settlers. And so, yeah, Frank was there and he was like, this is my fort. And then then they built the railroad. And so there were some... There was some reason to move like a few miles west to get close to the railroad. And then they were like, well, we'll just change the name of the town to West Frankfurt. I would actually move to West Frankfurt. Like, I feel like it's had its it's had its had bad news for hundreds of years. Right. It's How, like what, gambler's fallacy. I think it, it's due for some good times. You're not a kid in school and you're not a coal miner. So what are the chances? Oh, maybe, maybe I'm next. Oh, right. Stay-at-home dads are next. Yeah, it's going to take out all the game show contestants. <laughs> uh, in fact, the town of Parrish, Illinois, was utterly destroyed and never rebuilt. I guess that town's name literally means to die. To die. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in parish perished. perished. I was thinking that it was named after a, a church parish, but in fact it has two R's. And it's a guy named Parish. A guy named A parish. man there survived the tornado by clinging to a railroad track. Can you imagine the only thing that's not moving? He's, his feet are probably flying in the air like Buster Keaton. Well, in a lot of these locations, actually, the railroad tracks themselves were pulled up <sighs> by the tornado and flung miles in every direction. 
Wow. So uh, this guy just got lucky because holding onto the railroad track would not have helped you if you'd been in Gorham, Illinois or Annapolis, Missouri. A lot of these stories do end with people like not being able to find their mailbox and then finding it in a different state or yeah. whatever, right? Like uh, there's a West Frankfurt story about a farmer that found a barber chair <laughs> from just like a barber shop that was in a different town miles away. And a bond from a safe was found 125 miles away and later mailed back. Wow. 125 miles. And how to get out of the safe? Well, uh, so there are instances in tornadoes like this where safes are were ripped out of banks and flung into space. And actually the doors ripped off by the force of the storm. So it actually is the thing where safes fell on people's heads? Like, is that where the trope comes from? Bang, wah, 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 wah. Yeah, uh, and pianos too. I, yeah, pianos probably. Uh, that's how the that's how Wiley E. Coyote got his comeuppance a in 1925. A, ma- a popcorn man in Murfreesboro, Illinois, was tossed up in the air to the height of a one-story building, then set back down a block away. His popcorn stand moved three feet. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, again, like I'm just very curious about what a popcorn stand is and why the people of Portland haven't like revitalized that old tradition. I love the idea that there would just be a guy in this small town just selling popcorn on a street corner. Hey, come on, get your popcorn. Extra, extra. <laughs> I just made popcorn. And then the then the storm picks him up and, and deposits him safely somewhere else and the popcorn stand just stays. The storm picks up the unpopped kernels and pops them in the air. Here's what I'm saying. If you move to West Frankfurt, do not open a popcorn stand because... Uh, there's an opportunity there for uh, history to to get its get back. And that young man that fell in the popcorn was Orville Redenbacher. And that's the rest of the story. Uh, so as you can imagine, when surveying the past storms of America and American history, this storm, the, the tri-state storm alone, killed almost 700 people mostly in Illinois, but in, in all three states. Wow. Uh, storms that day in Tennessee killed 45 people. In Indiana and Kentucky and Alabama, there were a few isolated deaths. Uh, it, was a, it was a super bad storm system, but the tri-state storm itself ranks as the deadliest, longest, and in every measurable way, most destructive storm. And what's in second place? The Natchez tornado of 1840 only killed 317 people. Like no storm is even within halfway as uh, as fatal. Yeah, the Natchez storm killed less than half of the people of the tri-state storm. Although the Natchez storm happened quite a few years before, uh, during the mid-19th century when slavery was still a factor. May 1840. Uh, and it may have killed a lot more people. Oh, they only counted the white people. They only counted the whites. So the, the so slave deaths were not recorded in, wow. in storm reports. I'm, I'm sure they would have claimed them on their insurance forms. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But they but it's unclear how many people died in That's the Natchez awful. storm. But what, they, they didn't even prorate them to five eighths or whatever. No, not even that. Uh, wow. But the Natchez storm actually moved up the Mississippi, uh, and it was centered in the river, so it was killing people on both sides of the river, destroying towns, ripping like the just scouring the 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 shoreline of the Mississippi on both See, sides. See, that's the kind of thing where if you saw it in a Bruckheimer movie, you would not believe it. You'd say, come on. But if you're in Natchez in 1840, you see it coming at you. I, I guess you have to believe it. Most of the deaths in the Natchez storm came from people who were in boats. And the storm lifted up the like a boat full of people and just 
flung it down and killed them all. The people in the uh, on the sides, uh, like on the shore, were not unscathed, but it was really people on the river that died. And Mark Twain was surfing the edge of the wave. Yeah, that's where he got his name. Mark Twain means the great surfer. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so the Fujita scale has decided or, you know, uses the tri-state tornado as the benchmark of like what a, what a real F5 looks like. That's how bad it can be. Yeah. And as you've, as you've mentioned, like the destructiveness of tornadoes, even in spite of the fact that, the, that this country is much more populated, the destructiveness of t- tornadoes has gone down in the second half of the 20th century into right. the present. And I don't, I don't think any meteorologist can account for that exactly. It's, and it's not just better meteorology and better storm warnings. It's actually the severity of the storms themselves are measurably lower. I mean, if you think about the scale of this storm, if, if it happened yeah. now, no matter what your, uh, your advance warning was, right. you know, this would kill thousands of people now. It's the rare natural disaster that we're having fewer of. So uh, our listeners may not have ever heard of a tornado. Right. I mean, hurricanes seem to be the major weather system now, uh, the major destructive weather system that the seems... Hot, the hot new, it's, <laughs> the hot it's, new uh, storm. It's uh, all the rage and people, you know, hurricanes get worse and worse and we can attribute that to climate change. But for some reason, this uh, collision of warm air from the Gulf and and cold, dry air, cool, dry air from the mountains is not creating this these super conditions for devastating storms. Maybe future Earth has no tornadoes. Somebody, someday someone will be the last person flung in the air in comical but fatal fashion by a tornado. Well, it'll, I think it'll be that maybe the future, like, super articulate dolphins that populate the Earth will have a sports team uh, that's inexplicably called the tri-state tornadoes and nobody in dolphin town can explain like what that even is anymore. It's like, what the hell is a knickerbocker? I think it'll still be, it'll be offensive because people will be like, uh, tornadoes used to kill hundreds of people. This isn't funny. And that concludes the tri-state tornado entry 1339.je3023 certificate number 9101 in the omnibus. Listeners, we just want you to know that uh, John and I were so committed to the time capsule we are providing you that we encouraged other researchers of our time to weigh in with their own addenda and errata. I don't know if encouraged is the right word, but certainly we don't we don't fight it. And I don't know if errata is the right word either because it sounds like erotica. Uh, yeah, errata would be, it's the plural of erotica. <laughs> <laughs> I, is ero- so it's erratum. Erratum. And the plural is, a, is, a, is the plural errata or errata? Errata. Is it the same for eroticum? Can you, like, if you read one kind of uh, little horny short story, is it one eroticum? Hmm. Erot- then, or you can read multiple erotica? It must be eroticum. No. I didn't have a lot of time tonight. I just read a single eroticum. Eroticum? Uh... And so people could communicate with us in a variety of ways. You may communicate with us by writing eroticum uh, about us both. <laughs> some some fanfic, classic fanfic. Yeah, yeah. But please. don't put us together in any kind of scenario. Oh, I thought that's what you were saying. No. I thought you wanted people to like Kirk Spock fanfiction. No, I don't want that at all. No. So what are you picturing? I'm picturing a, a you thing. You and a tornado. Yeah, like me and a, and a, and a little hollow-eyed tornado. 
having some kind of uh, like motorcycle trip across the center of America while you uh, sit at home and uh, talk on the shortwave radio. No, I want to. I want you to send me a story about me and a winsome uh, popcorn stand girl uh-huh. meeting on a 1920s street corner, meeting up in the sky, and both <laughs> in right. like an eerie calm, both flung into the air. <laughs> and you could let us know about these increasingly bizarre scenario on social media mm-hmm. where I was at Ken Jennings and John was at John Roderick mm-hmm. and the show was at Omnibus Project. You could also email your longer fantasies to us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Please do. Or if you uh, prefer a collaborative narrative exercise with your fellow like-minded enthusiasts, there's always the Futurelings group on Facebook. Uh, Futurelings, we have no idea from our vantage point in your distant past whether this show will be regarded as a comical misapprehension of how bad future tornadoes will be. We may, ironically, get our comeuppance by being destroyed in the Great Seattle Tornado of 2040. The irony tornado. Won't that be hilarious? You know, I just remembered that the uh, the end of the world in Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, there's tornadoes everywhere after the oceans turn to ice. It does seem like tornadoes play a big role in, in apocalyptic scenarios. I think there, there are lots and lots of tornadoes in the Bible, aren't there? Oh, yeah. People uh, sow the wind and then they reap the whirlwind. Sure. That, that's what you get. I think sure. it's because they're very cinematic. You know, it's uh, an earthquake. Right. You just have to shake the camera. But a tornado is a thing that can come sure, at you. Sure, Charlton Heston can see it in the distance. Um, we hope and pray that we do not die in a tornado. I hope also that my children do not die in a tornado. People after that, I can't comprehend, so I'm not really that worried about I just want to chime in that there's one of my children that I do not want to die in a tornado. Oh, and the other one's fine. It it changes day to day. It's not like I have one good one and one bad one. Oh, I get what you're saying. But there's always one that's kind of on my bad side. But you want one at least to survive. Yes, I would like one of the good, whoever the child is who has currently pleased me to survive the tornado. I see. Agreed. Agreed. I feel that way about your children, too. <laughs> um, if the tornado does come soon, however, uh, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. Uh, but if uh, the tornado gods allow, we will hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>